This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable, it's supposed to be fun, and the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who, have, who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar. And I will say it was a, uh, it was a good experience for both of us. It made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student. He was trying to teach me how to finger pick. So I enjoyed it. I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Actually, Lee, it'll be mostly my favorite college president that will be doing most of the talking, the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry R. Alexis de Tocqueville is a Frenchman who came to the American in the 1830s and very perceptive guy, wrote an important book called Democracy in America. It's a picture of America at the time. And he makes this contrast, and it's really a contrast between constitutional rule and other kinds of rule. He notices, she says, and remember, he'd never been here before, never seen anything like this. The European generally submits to a public officer because he represents a superior force. In other words, why do you obey the law? Because the guy walking up to you in a uniform can hurt you if you don't. But to an American, he represents a right. In other words, you see somebody working for the government, you think they work for you. They're here to defend our rights. Now what follows this statement? That's a stark statement to read, right? Anybody afraid of the government today? If you're in business and you're regulated, are you afraid? Tocqueville continues, in America it may be said that no one renders obedience to man, but to justice and to law. And then there's a kind of transition in the paragraph. If the opinion which the citizen entertains of himself is exaggerated, is it at least salutary? He unhesitatingly confides in his own powers, which appear to him all sufficient. Now, that's a little bit derisory, right? We think more of ourselves than we should. I don't know what's the better alternative. I think it would be best of all if we could think of ourselves as we should. But would you rather have a citizen body that thinks less of itself or more of itself? And this gives rise to something, this thinking that we're in charge, according to Tocqueville. When a private individual meditates an undertaking, however directly connected it may be to the welfare of society, he never thinks of soliciting the cooperation of the government. But he publishes his plan, offers to execute himself, courts the assistance of other individuals, and struggles manfully against all obstacles. By the way, you know how this college comes to be here? It's in a little town in Michigan, founded in 1844. When it moved here to this town, Hillsdale, in 1853, this uh, fella who worked here for 50 years named Dunn rode his horse into town, and he went to the local hotel. There were two, actually. He went to both of them, and he said, went to the hotel here, and he said, I'm here in town. I want to move a college here to town. I would like to speak with the leading citizens interested in education. And they gathered, and they gathered in City Hall. Now, they used City Hall, but nobody thought that the government should build a college. And they sat and negotiated for about two hours, and the guy said, this guy Dunn said, look, this is going to be an abolitionist college. We don't like slavery. This is going to be a freedom college. We like the American Constitution and the principles of the Declaration. And this is going to be a Christian college. We like the Christian faith here. We dedicated our oldest building on the 4th of July. We're not going to have any distinctions of race. He just said all that. If you want a college like that, we'd like to move the college here. You got to give us some dough. He asked him for 10 grand. 
And that's a lot of money back then. And the city fathers of Hillsdale, we ended up coming here because they were shrewd cusses and they said, uh, they went away and deliberated and thought and they said, okay, we'll give you $15,000, but you have to match it. And Dunn got off on his horse and went off and did that. Took him two years, he rode all over Wisconsin, he'd preach on a Sunday and he'd get people who came to the service to, to give $5, $3, $2. We still have a list of the names, the first donors to Hillsdale College here at the college. It's a really cool story, really great story. And the story is consequential for our union. Because you know, we had 500 young men go fight for the Union Army in the Civil War. And nobody made them do that. We didn't even have any military training here then. We don't really have it here now either. Still have a lot of kids going in the military. Where'd they go? A college that teaches the meaning of the United States of America? That's a public service. Madison and Jefferson said, you can't understand your country if you don't study the things we teach here. We teach them here in part because they said that. One of those things, the first thing that made America and the rule of law in America, as this foreigner Tocqueville noticed, is the Declaration of Independence. And this is its story. The situation in which the Declaration of Independence is written, it is written in an atmosphere of the threat of execution. There is a warrant out for the arrest of everyone who signed that document. And it's, the warrant is not given to a lawful civil officer, it is given to a general. He's told to use his army and find these men. The full fury of British wrath will be unleashed even if it means complete war. A cold war had been simmering underneath the surface and threatened to become a hot one. In 1765, Britain violated the rule of law. Their Stamp Act imposed direct taxes on the American colonies, even though the English Bill of Rights prevented taxation without representation, which the colonies didn't have, and over a decade of chaos ensued. Remember the King of England, who was a nice man, by the way, and a, and a humble man for a king, was referred to by the title Majesty. And it took the founders, a lot of them, for a long time thought, the only way you can have stability is if some family is appointed to rule. And so the king, the king was a very humble man, but when his son wanted to marry a noble, but of lower station than the king's family, he said, princes may not marry subjects, ever, no matter what your heart says. So the point is, that's the world. That's what's known. A world that enough of them were now open to the possibility of rejecting and stepping into the great unknown. Enough so that 12 of the 13 American colonies meet in 1776 as a protest government and for something that they called a Congress. They named it, the Congress was called the Continental Congress. They hadn't seen the continent 
didn't until Lewis and Clark came back to report to now President Thomas Jefferson. The farthest west that they had seen at that point was Kentucky, and a President Thomas Jefferson wasn't a thought on anyone's mind, even his own. In fact, the federal government was so relatively insignificant to him and to the lives of citizens in that era that Jefferson didn't even list President of the United States on his tombstone. Instead, he decided to list the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom the founder of the University of Virginia, my alma mater, and this next thing, this manifesto that his peers in the Continental Congress tasked him with writing. They thought carefully about it. Jefferson was chosen because everybody knew he could write and knew he had the ideas, and he was young. 33 years old, and they gave him two weeks to do it just two weeks to write the declaration of independence the writing assignment of a lifetime folks at 33 years old talk about a tough project and when we come back we're going to continue to tell the story of the declaration of independence on our rule of law series and you're listening to a very unusual college president very few in this country and talk about our founders and our founding this way. And Hillsdale College is a terrific place to learn all the fine things in life, all the important things in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. You know, I recall hearing a David McCullough speech there. And McCullough started off the speech saying, just remember that nothing had to happen the way it happened. That men change outcomes. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and lives were at stake and in the balance. And when we come back, more of this great story about our founding. Again, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast and send the link to some friends if you can. And we continue with the story of the Declaration of Independence and the 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson being given just two weeks to write it. No pressure. Jefferson, holed up in a single, small, sweaty room, flies constantly buzzing around him. And yet, in spite of these worldly challenges, he drafted something that some believe the otherworldly could have only inspired. It says in a famous passage in the Declaration, he has sent among us a swarm of officials to harass our people and eat out our substance. It says that he has uh, 
sent foreign troops among us in no way answerable to us, to oppress us. He makes us pay for those troops. He taxes us without our consent. In other words, the government is now unlimited, can do whatever it wants, and that won't do. The opening of the Declaration of Independence has nothing to do with them. In fact, it demotes them. It's not our unique situation. It's not us, a special people, here to do a grand deed. It, uh, it begins universally and abstractly. When in the course of human events, means any old time, it becomes necessary for one people, means any old people, to dissolve the political bands that have connected with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. It's an act of obedience to a law that persists beyond the English law and beyond any law that they might make. So for them to be the particular people whose lives are at risk, and for them to be turning over an entire way of organizing society that had dominated for 2,000 years, and then for them to begin that way, it's very grand, but also you can't miss it, it's partly humble. It's, it's, we, the, these are the ways that people must comport themselves. We are going to do that. And if you will do that, British, we will get on. And if not, we will not. And we will be in the right because of that. What are these laws of nature and of nature's God that Jefferson writes of, that they say must be respected, that they say is above the British law? It's a beautiful phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God, but it's kind of a goofy, strange phrase too, not the type of language that we usually throw around. And most of us haven't really thought about it before either. But Dr. Arn is just the sort of guy who has. Nature means two things in this context. It means the thing itself. The cup is a cup. It has cupness about it. It makes it a cup. And there's lots of different cups, but you can see the cupness in all of them. So whatever the nature of a thing is, whatever it is specifically, the nature of the human being is to reason. It is the animal that can reason. This human thing is a very distinctive thing. And, and it can't be treated like a pig. That's a famous historical example. One day, Stephen Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates made the claim, I just don't understand Lincoln's position because I can take my property and I can take my hog into Nebraska, then a federal territory, and the federal government will provide a government to protect that property, my hog and my other property, so why doesn't it do that for my property and the slave? And Lincoln responds beautifully and logically in a way that shows what these words nature and equality mean. It means we can't really treat the Negro the same way we treat the hog. Have you in the South, Lincoln says, ever been willing to do so much? The great majority South as well as North have human sympathies of which they can no more divest themselves than they can of their sensibility to physical pain. In other words, Lincoln is saying, if you look at a man and you look at another man and one of them is black and one of them is white, they look different. But if you put a pig in the picture, now all of a sudden they look the same because they are the same. And that's the reason why you can't own them like their property. And he goes on to say, in the South, you in 1820 joined the North almost unanimously in declaring the African slave trade piracy 
and in saying that it would carry the death penalty to engage in the slave trade. But Lincoln goes on to explain, but it wasn't, you didn't think it was wrong or illegal or should be punished by death to bring a wild horse or a pig from Africa into the country. You can go trap them and bring them here all you want to. And the point is, Lincoln is saying, you know, and also you can't help but know that they're not the same thing as these horses and these pigs that you trap. In fact, Thomas Jefferson says in one of the last important letters he ever wrote in his life that what the Declaration of Independence means is that some men are not born with saddles on their backs nor others booted and spurred to ride them by the grace of God. And that's uh, powerful, right? Lincoln says you can sooner ignore a great physical pain pretend it doesn't exist, then you can pretend that you don't know the difference between a man and a pig. Because you do know it. And you can't help but know it. That's one reason why the Nazis would load people on cattle cars and ship them off to factories for their slaughter, just like slaughterhouses. But they didn't really like to talk about that very much. They were always trying to cover it up, right? And when they were later, after the war, when they were arrested, didn't stand up and say, yeah, I did that and that was really great. That's not the way they talk. Why? Because they know. And if you know that, then you know that a fellow 6,000 miles away in London, born of a great family, doesn't get to rule you as if you were a hog to take your property and lead you around and do whatever you want to. That's what the Declaration of Independence means. And by the way, the point about this is that these arguments from nature and equality, they are self-evident. What self-evident means is saying all men are created equal. You can actually turn that word men in that proposition into the word X. You can put the word cup there. You can put the word dog there. You can put the word pig there. You can put the word angel there. Because each being of a kind is equal in respect to the thing that gives it its nature. And human beings are the rational creatures and unlike hogs, responsible for their actions and cannot therefore be governed without their consent. Their consent to even come together as a community and decide to be ruled by a set of minimal common laws that are theirs. Laws that they made and aren't some morning whims of some king as mankind was ruled before then. And then, of course, there's the dramatic conclusion to the Declaration of independence. The end of it is a legal pronouncement that now we're going to be an independent country. A pronouncement, mind you, sealed by the people in the room there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, mutually pledging to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. It's a wartime, a battlefield proclamation. Thomas Jefferson is promising John Adams, and John Adams is promising Thomas Jefferson back Everything we've got is at stake in this. We're not going to quit on this thing. We're signing an act of treason. How many of them would lose their lives? Would any 
lose their fortunes, and most importantly, would any lose their sacred honor? That story next in The Rule of Law. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Actually, Lee, it'll be mostly my favorite college president that will be doing most of the talking, the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arnn. Alexis de Tocqueville is a Frenchman who came to the American in the 1830s and very perceptive guy, wrote an important book called Democracy in America. It's a picture of America at the time. And he makes this contrast, and it's really a contrast between constitutional rule and other kinds of rule. He notices, she says, and remember, never been here before, never seen anything like this. The European generally submits to a public officer because he represents a superior force. In other words, why do you obey the law? Because the guy walking up to you in a uniform can hurt you if you don't. But to an American, he represents a right. In other words, you see somebody working for the government, you think they work for you. They're here to defend our rights. Now what follows this statement? That's a stark statement to read, right? Anybody afraid of the government today? If you're in business and you're regulated, are you afraid? Tocqueville continues, in America it may be said that no one renders obedience to man, but to justice and to law. And then there's a kind of transition in the paragraph. If the opinion which the citizen entertains of himself is exaggerated, is it at least salutary? He unhesitatingly confides in his own powers, which appear to him all sufficient. Now, that's a little bit derisory, right? We think more of ourselves than we should. I don't know what's the better alternative. I think it would be best of all if we could think of ourselves as we should. But would you rather have a citizen body that thinks less of itself or more of itself? And this gives rise to something, this thinking that we're in charge, according to Tocqueville. When a private individual meditates an undertaking, however directly connected it may be to the welfare of society, he never thinks of soliciting the cooperation of the government. But he publishes his plan, offers to execute himself, courts the assistance of other individuals, and struggles manfully against all obstacles. By the way, 
You know how this college comes to be here? It's in a little town in Michigan, founded in 1844. When it moved here to this town, Hillsdale, in 1853, this uh, fella who worked here for 50 years named Dunn rode his horse into town, and he went to the local hotel. There were two, actually. He went to both of them, and he said, went to the hotel here, and he said, I'm here in town. I want to move a college here to town. I would like to speak with the leading citizens interested in education. And they gathered, and they gathered in City Hall. Now, they used City Hall, but nobody thought that the government should build a college. And they sat and negotiated for about two hours, and the guy said, this guy Dunn said, look, this is going to be an abolitionist college. We don't like slavery. This is going to be a freedom college. We like the American Constitution and the principles of the Declaration. And this is going to be a Christian college. We like the Christian faith here. We dedicated our oldest building on the 4th of July. We're not going to have any distinctions of race. He just said all that. If you want a college like that, we'd like to move the college here. You got to give us some dough. He asked them for 10 grand. And that's a lot of money back then. And the city fathers of Hillsdale, we ended up coming here because they were shrewd cusses and they said, uh, they went away and deliberated and thought and they said, okay, we'll give you $15,000, but you have to match it. And Dunn got off on his horse and went off and did that. Took him two years. He rode all over Wisconsin. He'd preach on a Sunday and he'd get people who came to the service to, to give $5, $3, $2. We still have a list of the names, the first donors to Hillsdale College here at the college. It's a really cool story, really great story. And the story is consequential for our union. Because, you know, we had 500 young men go fight for the Union Army in the Civil War. And nobody made them do that. We didn't even have any military training here then. We don't really have it here now either. Still have a lot of kids going to the military. Why'd they go? A college that teaches the meaning of the United States of America? That's a public service. Madison and Jefferson said you can't understand your country if you don't study the things we teach here. We teach them here in part because they said that. One of those things, the first thing that made America and the rule of law in America, as this foreigner Tocqueville noticed, is the Declaration of Independence. And this is its story. The situation in which the Declaration of Independence is written, it is written in an atmosphere of the threat of execution. There is a warrant out for the arrest of everyone who signed that document. And it's, the warrant is not given to a lawful civil officer, it is given to a general. He's told to use his army and find these men. The full fury of British wrath will be unleashed even if it means complete war. A cold war had been simmering underneath the surface and threatened to become a hot one. In 1765, Britain violated the rule of law. Their Stamp Act imposed direct taxes on the American colonies, even though the English Bill of Rights prevented taxation without representation, which the colonies didn't have, and over a decade of chaos ensued. Remember the king of England, who was a nice man, by the way, and a, and a humble man for a king, 
was referred to by the title majesty. And it took the founders, a lot of them, for a long time thought, the only way you can have stability is if some family is appointed to rule. And so the king, the king was a very humble man, but when his son wanted to marry a noble, but of lower station than the king's family, he said, princes may not marry subjects, ever, no matter what your heart says. So the point is, that's the world. That's what's known. A world that enough of them were now open to the possibility of rejecting and stepping into the great unknown. Enough so that 12 of the 13 American colonies meet in 1776 as a protest government and for something that they called a Congress. They named it, the Congress was called the Continental Congress. They hadn't seen the continent, didn't, until Lewis and Clark came back to report to now President Thomas Jefferson. The farthest west that they had seen at that point was Kentucky, and a President Thomas Jefferson wasn't a thought on anyone's mind, even his own. In fact, the federal government was so relatively insignificant to him and to the lives of citizens in that era that Jefferson didn't even list President of the United States on his tombstone. Instead, he decided to list the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, the founder of the University of Virginia, my alma mater, and this next thing, this manifesto that his peers in the Continental Congress tasked him with writing. They thought carefully about it. Jefferson was chosen because everybody knew he could write and knew he had the ideas, and he was young. 33 years old, and they gave him two weeks to do it, just two weeks to write the Declaration of Independence. The writing assignment of a lifetime, folks, at 33 years old. Talk about a tough project. And when we come back, we're going to continue to tell the story of the Declaration of Independence on our Rule of Law series. And you're listening to a very unusual college president, very few in this country, can talk about our founders and our founding this way. And Hillsdale College is a terrific place to learn all the fine things in life, all the important things in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. You know, I recall hearing a David McCullough speech there. And McCullough started off the speech saying, just remember that nothing had to happen the way it happened. That men change outcomes. Nobody knew what was going to happen and lives were at stake and in the balance. And when we come back, more of this great story about our founding. Again, our Rule of Law series here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast and send the link to some friends if you can. And we continue with the story of the Declaration of Independence and the 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson being given just two weeks to write it. No pressure. Jefferson, holed up in a single, small, sweaty room, flies constantly buzzing around him. And yet, in spite of these worldly challenges, he drafted something that some believe the otherworldly could have only inspired. It says in a famous passage in the Declaration, he has sent among us a swarm of officials to harass our people and eat out our substance. It says that he has uh, sent foreign troops among us in no way answerable to us, to oppress us. He makes us pay for those troops. He taxes us without our consent. In other words, the government is now unlimited, can do whatever it wants, and that won't do. The opening of the Declaration of Independence has nothing to do with them. In fact, it demotes them. It's not our unique situation. It's not us, a special people, here to do a grand deed. It, uh, it begins universally and abstractly. When in the course of human events, means any old time, it becomes necessary for one people, means any old people, to dissolve the political bands that have connected with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. It's an act of obedience to a law that persists beyond the English law and beyond any law that they might make. So for them to be the particular people whose lives are at risk, and for them to be turning over an entire way of organizing society that had dominated for 2,000 years, and then for them to begin that way, it's very grand, but also you can't miss it, it's partly humble. It's, it's, we, the, these are the ways that people must comport themselves. We are going to do that. And if you will do that, British, we will get on. And if not, we will not. And we will be in the right because of that. What are these laws of nature and of nature's God that Jefferson writes of, that they say must be respected, that they say is above the British law? It's a beautiful phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God, but... It's kind of a goofy, strange phrase, too. Not the type of language that we usually throw around. And most of us haven't really thought about it before, either. But Dr. Arn is just the sort of guy who has. Nature means two things in this context. It means the thing itself. The cup is a cup. It has cupness about it. It makes it a cup. And there's lots of different cups, but you can see the cupness in all of them. So whatever the nature of a thing is, whatever it is specifically, the nature of the human being is to reason. It is the animal that can reason. This human thing is a very distinctive thing. And, and it can't be treated like a pig. That's a famous historical example. One day, Stephen Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates made the claim, I just don't understand Lincoln's position because I can take my property and I can take my hog into Nebraska, then a federal territory, and the federal government will provide a government to protect that property, my hog and my other property. So why doesn't it do that for my property and the slave? 
And Lincoln responds beautifully and logically in a way that shows what these words nature and equality mean. It means we can't really treat the Negro the same way we treat the hog. Have you in the South, Lincoln says, ever been willing to do so much? The great majority South as well as North have human sympathies of which they can no more divest themselves than they can of their sensibility to physical pain. In other words, Lincoln is saying, if you look at a man and you look at another man and one of them is black and one of them is white, they look different. But if you put a pig in the picture, now all of a sudden they look the same because they are the same. And that's the reason why you can't own them like their property. And he goes on to say, in the South, you in 1820 joined the North almost unanimously in declaring the African slave trade piracy and in saying that it would carry the death penalty to engage in the slave trade. But Lincoln goes on to explain, but it wasn't, you didn't think it was wrong or illegal or should be punished by death to bring a wild horse or a pig from Africa into the country. You can go trap them and bring them here all you want to. And the point is, Lincoln is saying, you know, and also you can't help but know that they're not the same thing as these horses and these pigs that you trap. In fact, Thomas Jefferson says in one of the last important letters he ever wrote in his life that what the Declaration of Independence means is that some men are not born with saddles on their backs nor others booted and spurred to ride them by the grace of God. And that's uh, powerful, right? Lincoln says you can sooner ignore a great physical pain Pretend it doesn't exist, then you can pretend that you don't know the difference between a man and a pig. Because you do know it. And you can't help but know it. That's one reason why the Nazis would load people on cattle cars and ship them off to factories for their slaughter, just like slaughterhouses. But they didn't really like to talk about that very much. They were always trying to cover it up, right? And when they were later, after the war, when they were arrested, didn't stand up and say, yeah, I did that and that was really great. That's not the way they talk. Why? Because they know. And if you know that, then you know that a fellow 6,000 miles away in London, born of a great family, doesn't get to rule you as if you were a hog to take your property and lead you around and do whatever you want to. That's what the Declaration of Independence means. And by the way, the point about this is that these arguments from nature and equality, they are self-evident. What self-evident means is saying all men are created equal. You can actually turn that word men in that proposition into the word X. You can put the word cup there. You can put the word dog there. You can put the word pig there. You can put the word angel there. Because each being of a kind is equal in respect to the thing that gives it its nature. And human beings are the rational creatures and unlike hogs, responsible for their actions and cannot therefore be governed without their consent. Their consent to even come together as a community and decide to be ruled by a set of minimal common laws that are theirs, laws that they made and 
aren't some mourning whims of some king, as mankind was ruled before then. And then, of course, there's the dramatic conclusion to the Declaration of Independence. The end of it is a legal pronouncement that now we're going to be an independent country. A pronouncement, mind you, sealed by the people in the room there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, mutually pledging to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. It's a wartime, a battlefield proclamation. Thomas Jefferson is promising John Adams, and John Adams is promising Thomas Jefferson back. Everything we've got is at stake in this. We're not going to quit on this thing. We're signing an act of treason. How many of them would lose their lives? Would any lose their fortunes? And most importantly, would any lose their sacred honor? That story next in The Rule of Law. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love music here on the show and we love history and that's why this is our favorite segment and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1961, Bob Dylan appeared on Harry Belafonte's album The Midnight Special playing the harmonica on the title track. Dylan was paid a $50 session fee for this, his first ever professional recording. Well, I wake up in the morning Every ding dong ring You go a marching to the table You see the same old thing Baby, all I wanna tell you A knife, a fork, and a pan And if you say a thing about it You're in trouble with the man Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine its ever-loving light on me Yes, let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine its ever-loving light on me In 1966, Wild Thing by the Trogs, who were originally called the Troglodytes, was released in the U.S. on both the Atco and Fontana labels. Thank you. 
And born this week in music history, 1936, country singer-songwriter Glenn Campbell. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds. And the ink stains that are dried upon some line That keeps you in the back roads By the rivers of my memory It keeps you ever gentle on my mind It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy Planted on their columns now that bind me Or something that somebody said Because they thought we fit together walking It's just knowing that the world will not be cursing or forgiving When I walk along some railroad track and find That you're moving on the back roads by the rivers of my memory And for hours you're just gentle on my mind Though the wheat fields and the clotheslines and the junkyards and the highways come between us And some other woman's crying to her mother cause she turned and I was gone I still might run in silence, tears of joy might stain my face And a summer sun might burn me till I'm blind but not to where I cannot see you walking on the back roads By the rivers flowing gentle on my mind I dip my cup of soup back from a gurgling, crackling cauldron in some train yard My beard a roughening coal pile and a dirty hat full load across my face Through cupped hands round the tin can I pretend to hold you to my breast and find That you're awaiting from the back roads By the rivers of my memories Ever smiling, ever gentle on my mind and in 1961, Del Shannon started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Runaway, also at number one in the U.K. As I walk along, I wonder what went wrong with our love, a love that was so strong. And as I still walk on, I think of the things we've done together.
1979, Ray Charles' Georgia on the Mind was proclaimed the state song of Georgia. Music to the song was written in 1930 by Hoagy Carmichael, who also recorded a version of the song in New York in the same year. Ray Charles, a native of Georgia, recorded it in 1960 on the album The Genius Hits the Road. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song. Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind I said a Georgia Georgia A song of you Comes as sweet and clear Moonlight through the pine. And you can hear the story of this song in its entirety at ouramericannetwork.org. And in 1987, this week in music history, U2 started a five week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with their fifth studio album, The Joshua Tree. Inspired by American tour experiences, literature, and politics, the album topped the charts in over 20 countries and is one of the world's all time best selling albums with over 25 million sold. Another birthday this week, born in 1918, American jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. My story is much too sad to be told, but practically everything leaves me totally cold. The only exception I know is the case when I'm out on a quiet spree. Fighting vainly the old ennui And I suddenly turn and see Your fabulous face I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some get a kick from cocaine I'm sure that if I took even one sniff that would bore me terrifically too but I get a kick out of you Fitzgerald passed away from a stroke in 1996 at the age of 79 and in 1973 Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon went to number one here in the States 
The album went on to enjoy a record-breaking 741 discontinuous weeks on the Billboard chart and has now sold over 45 million copies worldwide. After moving to the Billboard Top Pop Catalog chart, the album notched up a further 759 weeks there, reaching a total of over 1,500 weeks on the combined charts by May of 2006. And that is This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show, from American history to the arts to sports, and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business, and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country, all of it. You can hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up, to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter, and go to iTunes. And type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself. Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known con men in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, you know what kind of criminal we're talking about. From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states. And I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. 
While the film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source, especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious conmen to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal. I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. His parents were getting a divorce. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon, asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said family court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench, so I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again. So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? Uh, 16. How far did you go in high school? Uh, 10th grade. I'll hire you. I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet. By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be.
One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work in the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there. The checks were good. But it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. Now, years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it, I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody, anywhere to cash a check for me. So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over. I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd like, to, um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. And the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, ma'am, can you help me? My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but... Never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaners say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? But I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen, with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. So no problem, I'll write you a check. No, um, we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll, um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance. 
comes out of your next Pan paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. When we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with the fake ID. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of the real-life Frank Abagnale, as told by Frank himself. He successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor, and now we return to his story. Here's Jesse. Logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy. I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. Started to call around and finally one company said, Listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I'll tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit and the sales rope opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am, Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a 5 by 7 glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name. And in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one do you. know, I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now, we don't just sell these cards. We sell the system, camera, laminator. Oh, we have to buy all this? Absolutely. But tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, have a seat right here. Took my picture and there's the car. Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18... I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. 
I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? So one of the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening, I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump suit, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle, scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5. I'd go down the Parma House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said, Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID, they'd give me a key, I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline, the airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check. Actually, a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air Grand. It would take me a good eight hours, stopping at every counter and every building, by the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again. Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check. He was inevitably caught. Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught. And I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I had forged checks all over France so they refused to honor the warrant and Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmö, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. 
I agreed and was released. That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day. This year, I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday, I fly up to Washington about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40-plus years and my three sons. And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. And what a story, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories, your stories too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up there, register with us, give us some details, and we'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may hear angels cheer, cause we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied This is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Frank Abagnale who is played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over $350 million, or six times more than the $52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around L.A., but quite a few in New York, Montreal... And as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse. 
In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures, he doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort, and unlike how he might be perceived by his fans, is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth. As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film, but we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally every week on HBO and TV, and then become a Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently, every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, and they feel compelled to write. And, of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life and will until my death. The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted. That I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now, the world is... The world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy, loved his children more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the more I researched Frank's youth, now without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you, I love you very much. He never, ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps, he was 6'4", he played semi-pro football for Buffalo, but my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear, he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. 
All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make. So I ran. While Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room? Because, you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs of New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories. I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. Forty-plus years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. And I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me, but the truth is, God gave me a wife, she gave me three beautiful children, she gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes. The last thing you think about, last thing you worry about, 
are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give them a hug, you give them a kiss, you tell them you love them while you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money, achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. <laughs> Thank you. And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night, never missed a night. Frank remembers, I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course, talking about family, which we do so much of here on this show, he thanks God first, he thanks his wife second, and the family, and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce, you're hearing or thinking about this story. As you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is Our American Stories. Frank Abagnale's story... In a way, his entire family's story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do. Mm-hmm.